0: Looking at a remarkable idea an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men women and children and you my friends are about to witness this idea become a reality for this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert
1: one right. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again, serve you, those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show. A place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search end of days and you'll find the 24-7 network as well as the Fringe FM who is carrying this at a later time. You can also go to michaeldeacon.com if you care to interact with me or other listeners. Feel free to call in whenever you'd like. And my guest tonight is John Kelly. John is a international clinician and a world-famous speech analyst who released key intelligence Pertaining to the Iraq War, two years in advance of the shock and awe strikes against Baghdad in 2003. As a former feature producer for CBS Radio, with experience in the number one rated U.S. television, his work exploring consciousness, communications, and the paranormal. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. It certainly feels good to be back here. Always feels great to be back here. And of course, Mr. John Kelly will be joining me here in a moment. We will be discussing reverse speech. Secret messages hidden backwards in the human voice transmit unconscious communications. These messages provide insight into deep structures of the mind. Now, without further ado, let's bring in our guest. John, what's going on?
0: Hey, Michael. It's uh Saturday night in Canada, and uh, we are in our... Warm summer days, but uh, we're kind of cooling down and overcast uh, this weekend anyways. Uh, we have our Canada Day celebration coming up, our national uh, anniversary for for the uh, creation of Canada in the 19th century. So we're all happy about that. and We know our cousins in, in the United States will be celebrating their July 4th uh, this weekend as well.
1: Oh, that's amazing. And, John, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program. I do appreciate the time you're spending here with all of us.
0: Well, I, I was very glad uh, to be invited uh, to be a guest on your show. I know you've spoken to many luminaries, uh, uh many different guests, uh, many powerful speakers, so I, I'm glad to be able to make a contribution to the discussion.
1: Oh, no doubt, no doubt. And I've always thought you were one fantastic individual in your own right, my friend, that you have uh, some story, and I was hoping we could get right into uh, your roots. I, I think you are definitely someone of top talent caliber, my friend.
0: Thank you very much uh, for your vote of confidence. Well, I'm a Canadian. I was born and raised in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, I had numerous interests in uh, arts and music uh, when I was uh, going through school uh so a lot I spent a lot of time studying music and sound recording uh uh tra- transcribing uh musical performances and, and so on and I, I never understood at that time how that would lead me as an intensive listener into studies of the human voice and unconscious communications that would come later and that would propel me into a you know a semi celebrity st- status and as much as I was given access to all kinds of airtime uh uh throughout the English speaking world and beyond uh my studies are uh, focused on a clinical practice. My website is called yourinnervoice.com, and I provide services to individuals, couples, uh, working through issues that uh, conventional mainstream talking therapies may attempt to address using a, a methodology that shortcuts the discovery process and produces very dramatic results in, in short order. Uh, so this has been a very kind of revolutionary work in as much as... Uh, we're in a time now when mainstream medicine and molecular medicine are, are wrapped up in, in an opioid crisis. Oh, yes. Just, just this week, it was announced that the uh, United States government, uh, the Department of Justice had, had arrested over 600 individuals in relation to healthcare fraud and, and opioid uh, sales. And so... Uh, these kinds of solutions, the technological solutions, the high-tech solutions, and the chemistry, uh, all the scientific advances, uh, material advances of the last 100, 150 years, uh, have brought us uh, to to this point uh, where talking therapies in, in counseling, talking therapies had been widely abandoned by many in psychiatry who prefer a molecular approach and prescription medicine. But the prescription medicines have now become a, an, an odious burden on society. People are uh, suffering, uh, people are dying of fentanyl, overdose, opioid overdose, all these, all these problems have arisen. So my work responds to these conditions by, by saying, you know, we need a simpler approach. We need a, a more human based approach. We need skilled. Uh, practitioners who can deliver effective talking therapies that don't call for, for these types of medical interventions. And so I have been working out in the field at the grassroots level, uh, with people all throughout the world, uh, providing services using a, a very in- interesting methodology that we'll talk about more that it, it, the way I describe it, we're talking about a- applied granular speech synthesis and granular synthesis is something that has been uh, explored and studied since at least the 1950s. Uh, so it's, it's part of the mo- modern sound technology being applied in, uh, I- I- in my case, in, in a therapeutic approach. But beyond, beyond my work as a clinician, uh, I, I'm widely known as a journalist and reporter. I, I write for newsinsideout.com, which is an alternative news site that's, we're in our third or fourth year of operations now. And, in participating and in covering the events of the day, I have uh, produced many breakthrough reports, including one that you mentioned in yes. my bio, uh, where we broke the time barrier in obtaining information about future events.
1: Yes. The, and, you know, I want to get right into all of these things. But before we do, John, I must ask, how on earth did you even get led into any of these things? It's quite remarkable, Um you also broke a story involving Edward Snowden nine months before uh before anyone even knew about anything.
0: Yeah, I, I it was fortuitous and circumstantial that I, I obtained access to uh stories that had uh, tremendous international significance and the stories had legs, meaning that uh they would be of renewed interest year after year. Uh so I, I you know i i I'm a small footnote in history. Attached to all of these historic events of the last 20 years or so. Uh, uh, and so it was, again, it was circumstances. Uh, some people, you know, say that they found their niche, you know, by pursuing this path, this course of interest that I was, I was aroused to, uh, these studies through Art Bell's programming in the 1990s. His late night radio show, uh, had highlighted, uh, what, what people refer to as reverse speech. Um, and so I became very interested in those studies. And at that time, I understood there was a post-secondary vocational uh, study program offered in Southern California. Is that
1: what, is that
0: what David Oates, by the way? That, that is correct. Ah, okay. And so I pursued that course of study, uh, to, to see what, what the, what, what those people knew about the subject to understand what, what work uh, had been done, what understanding had been reached. Uh, but I broke from that group and I, I pursued my own practice and, uh, I wrote a wave of publicity, uh, and I just, you know, I capitalized on a tremendous opportunity to to develop a, an independent practice uh, uh, where I refined my own methods, my own philosophical approach to the, to the subject. Uh, I abandoned uh, much of the curriculum that uh, was being taught, but by exposing myself to the, to the available curriculum, it showed that I wasn't a person. I wasn't so, so much of a egotist that um, I was not willing to listen to my elders or to to study the work of those who had come before me. But I think that when we're talking about the subject, you know, that the notion of reverse speech, uh, which is a trademarked uh, brand is, uh, is, is a misnomer in as much as science is, will, is willing to consider a multi-dimensional speech. But, but by uh, acknowledging spe- that speech phenomena possess multiple facets, uh, science doesn't seek to divide uh, or create uh, false differentiations where we have, uh, d- We have natural speech and then we have natural speech two and natural speech three. Science doesn't consider that there is, that there is anything other than one, uh, speech, one, one human speech, uh, one phenomena of speech that possesses multiple facets. This was written about in articles that appeared in the journal Nature and the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, where studies were conducted at Cal State University in the end of the 1990s. This was a time when t- telephone services were being transitioned from analog to digital where we now have uh, telephone services over over data connections for example which and data networks behave differently than analog uh, trunk lines and so scientists were attempting to, de- to determine speech intelligibility when transmissions were scrambled um due to transmission over uh networks like like an internet where right. contiguous uh, signals uh, at the transmission end are, are broken into packets, and those packets are routed uh, on various routes at various speeds uh, across a web structure, a web topology, and uh, re- reassembled at the receiving device. And so many things can happen when you uh, separate entities. You know, if you send a train down a, a track, and all of the passenger cars in the back become disconnected and sent off on different routes to rejoin somewhere else down the line. I mean, you can imagine all the different circumstances that may arise. Uh, for example, due to a phenomenon known as latency, data packets could arrive early or late uh, from their original position in the queue. So there, was, so resequencing of packets can occur as as, as one phenomenon. So scientists at Cal State were attempting to study uh speech that was scrambled in ways that was similar to performance of packets on data networks. To right, if,
1: right. I was, I was just going to say that reminds me of uh, p- pinging someone's computer. Exactly. That I don't know of, just to clear that up. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, I don't know nothing. I swear.
0: and so uh this research uh, what they used that the methodology that was employed in the study uh relied on something called granular synthesis and granularization is the study of of sound as a particle most of our listeners are familiar with the idea of a sound wave right but how many of us are, are familiar with thinking of sound in terms of Uh, individual particles. Typically that kind of thinking is something that's discussed when when we study the phenomena of light transmission. Correct. Where there are two models, light as a wave or light as a particle and I'm not too sure where the science is on that today, but it's 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 a topic of ongoing discussion over the last 100 or so years. And so the granularization of sound was something that was taken up by an engineering and a composer. I can't remember the the fellow's name, uh, but in the early 1950s, this became a prominent idea that engineering principles applied to sound studies would lead to um, developments in in Western art music composition. Uh, And so there were... Numerous uh, things that granularization and digitization of sound can do that are that things that are not possible with analog equipment. If we look back at the history of sound recording and reproduction technology, we find that in the 20th century, in the 1930s, engineers in both Great Britain and Germany uh, were involved in the development of reel-to-reel magnetic tape uh, decks. And those decks possessed this quality of uh where, where the tapes could be played in two directions, bi-directional playback, so that forwards and reverse playback were, were possible with those systems. This was something that was not, um, possible, you know, a hundred years prior. Sound recording, you know, it, it, back in Edison's days with, uh, with wax cylinders and such, I mean, when it was just starting these, this, this was kind of an innovation just to be able to have bi-directional playback across a tape head. And so when we think about people listening to, uh, mirror encrypted recordings, you know, reversed audio and such, we can, we can look back at least to the 1930s when that became, uh, technologically feasible that people uh, began to produce tape to tech, tape, uh, tape deck, uh, reel to reel decks with bi-directional playback. Uh, those analog instruments, however, had different uh, kinds of shortcomings. For example, if a person wanted to slow down the recording, they would uh, render the recording with an accompanying drop in pitch. Uh, if they wanted to change the pitch of the recording, it would also be influenced by change in the speed of playback. And so uh, with the advent of digital audio, uh, granular techniques allow for uh, pitch change without tempo change and tempo change without pitch change, for example, by adding or subtracting uh gr- Separate grains or sound particles, cloning and adding and subtracting. Well, I'll be demonstrating some of these ideas uh, a little later in the show. We'll, we'll listen right. to some examples. Yeah, of how we'll, that would...
1: we'll yeah we'll get into all of that. And I was just going to mention I had seen a video of yours. I think it might have been last year, and you had reverse speeched. I believe it was Donald Trump. Certainly.
0: Well, uh, I, as a reporter, I've been covering presidential inaugurations in the United States since the beginning of the millennium. And so President Trump's inaugural uh, was no different. Uh, but, I, However, I would say that from my limited understanding of, of uh, elections in the United States, that the, President Trump's election and campaign were highly unusual compared to the precedents of the previous 15 years or so that I'd been looking at it was very unusual and so I started taking a closer look at yeah bizarre
1: uh, stuff no doubt
0: many many kind of really unusual uh, phenomena in the campaign and, and and as well as around the time of the of the uh, the inaugural and, and the beginning of his term and so I I, I pulled from several sources and uh there were some highly controversial stories, uh, about the president. Uh, I mean, the president is under investigation by federal agents at the, at, as we speak today. And, you don't
1: hear that every day.
0: Uh, it's not, uh, it's not so usual, uh, right. yeah. to, to be uh, the leader of the free world and facing those kinds of circumstances at the same time.
1: Oh, not at all. And we'll, we'll get into all of these things, but I'm glad, uh, you said that it's definitely not easy, no matter what side you are on being in the public eye is just it's very damning. Uh
0: well, yes and, and so even more so today in our social media world, we know that um any kind of political action that a business might take uh that may be construed as antagonistic to a minority uh becomes a, a major major cause in social media. Uh, restaurants have their Yelp reviews just absolutely trashed if they um to ask a guest to leave, uh, because of their st- their political or other standing?
1: It's terrible, really, yes. And that reminds me of the treatment Sarah Huckabee got. And I must say, I haven't really been too kind to her on this program. I've been kind of mean. But, you know, I- I'm kind of mean to everyone now, you know, for entertainment purposes, to be honest with you, John. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's- let's talk about that. You think that was unfair, the way she was treated, John?
0: Well, I think that the precedent that I'm familiar with had, is the Baker, who was asked to serve a couple who who were about to be married, who were a gay couple. Right, right. I, I believe that ca- that case made it to the Supreme Court because the Baker refused service, and so the, the service industry, these questions of of uh, what are the what are the moral and legal obligations of pe- people working in service industries uh, to accept to accept contracts with uh, People who are making different propositions. Some of the propositions are antagonistic to people's religious beliefs. For example, I believe that was the case that was made for that baker. But here, in, in the in the, the uh, restaurant in Virginia, where Sarah Huckabee was asked to leave, it was entirely a political scenario, uh, and it was a very expensive decision on the behalf of that business owner because I believe that uh, not only uh, was there public um, blowback, you know, on, on site at the business location. But that that person had to leave uh, a, a business com- community uh, leadership position as well due to the controversy surrounding that decision. Uh, I, I think that I think that what we're seeing on a day-to-day basis now is is that the envelopes of the society are being pushed in multiple directions at the same time. You know, the republic or the or and its democracy. Are being challenged in new and unusual ways that we have not necessarily as a society attempted to understand or make sense of or to wade through in the past. There are challenges on many sides. There are many highly volatile political sentiments, uh, that are being shown in public. Uh, there was the, sh- the shooting in, in Washington DC at a, uh, at a softball game of uh, one of the congressmen. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, that, I mean, as soon as people start shooting at political figures, I mean, we're invoking that the the worst strife of U.S. history—the shooting of John F. Kennedy, the shooting of Robert Kennedy, the shooting of Martin, Martin Luther King—just as simple examples. That we, as soon as people start pulling out the guns like that, and the, the violence is stepping up, uh, these are these are very uh, severe uh, conditions. Uh, and so we are, as we speak tonight, you know, we're just we're, we find ourselves in the middle of this intense volatility. All over, it's, it's, it's all around us. Social media has become an incredibly unstable environment for news organizations.
1: It's very scary. Anything you say will be used against you, even in a court of law.
0: Certainly, but but, but, but to speak further to that point that you've raised, it's it's the active mob mentality that we see on display now on a regular basis. Oh, correct. But whether that the mob is incited to downvote a restaurant or to, to march in protest, Uh, or to commit acts of, you know, civil disobedience and social violence and so on. Uh, the, 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 the ability to incite a mob response is on display now. There are, we are seeing more and more unchecked mob responses to the conflicts and misunderstandings of our times. And this is a very powerful and dangerous force because a mob is not a uh, sort of a wisdom-guided entity. A mob is a is a is a is a chaotic and anarchistic entity uh, that could undermine, you know, that that could burn libraries, for example. I mean, the, you know, we 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 could lose a lot by surrendering our uh, our collective will to the mentality of a mob.
1: It's a very strange time, and to wrap it up with uh, Sarah Huckabee, I just wanted to quickly add, uh, I'm not exactly for that sort of type of treatment she got. At a restaurant, even though I don't agree with many of the things that she says, I still don't think it's the right thing to do to to someone.
0: To be honest with you, that's that's a little too much. Well, I think I think that in terms of national unity, you know, there is there are these underlying sentiments that we're kind of all in this together. You know, that kind of togetherness, kind of uh, collective mentality. Uh, Some of the critics of that restaurant event. I've said that the owner should have uh, made an exception for the Huckabees and, and, uh, or Mrs. Sanders and her family and, and served them. If, if the staff refused to serve them, that the, uh, that the, uh, the owner sh- had, a, 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 in terms of hospitality, had a responsibility to protect the guest.
1: That so too. People,
0: people have criticized that. I mean, after the meal is served at the end of the day, you know, that maybe she she, if she had disagreements, she could have given her a letter, but um I, I, as I say it, it, that, that, I think that was an incredibly expensive decision uh, for for that business owner, and I, we, I don't think we've begun to see the repercussions for what may happen to that that restaurant as a result. If we transpose that into into the Canadian situation, there's in, in the us national news, it's crazy that this is national news in in the United States, but a Vancouver restaurant here in my city, a Vancouver restaurant refused service a manager refused service to uh, a Make a Gre- America great again hat wearing mm, okay uh, patron, yes and uh was fired from the restaurant uh but it uh, again it was this it was an entirely a politically motivated statement in a in a place of business or a place of hospitality uh if that's made- what i don't want to see john
1: that politics just overrides everything and Showed, shows its ugly face in places it shouldn't be, um, and I'm all I'm all for protesting. Don't get
0: me wrong, but there's a place for everything. Well, I think that I think that we're as a society we're being challenged to uh, to mature and evolve to address the perceived chaos of the day. Uh, I, I'm not so much one for partisan politics. I'm I'm much more issues focused. Uh, I understand people have strong, uh, feelings about, you know, party, party affiliation and so on. But I, I believe that there are, uh, winners on both sides of the aisle and potential winners who, potential leaders who can step forward, you know, with potential solutions. And I, I, wouldn't attempt to do anything that would, uh, you know, throw, throw a bucket of water on a potential solution provider before they had a chance to emerge.
1: It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. This country has been divided. Uh, pretty badly. And I believe, John, the last time, uh, this great nation was ever seeming, seemingly, um, close to one another is right after 9-11, actually. That was probably the last time I felt sort of in a way that we were all together.
0: Uh, understandable. So, you know, this is what we're talking about in, in, in a, in a, in a big picture sense is we're talking about psychology of crowds. And, and that a crisis, a, a collective crisis, can foment solidarity even amongst dis- disparate peoples. That they can put down their differences temporarily. You know, if uh, if if you're living out in the country and your neighbor a mile down the road has a the barn is on fire. You know, everyone's running down there with with water. You know, brigades, a community brigade to put the thing out. You know, everyone is everyone is in this thing together. You know, if my neighbor's doing well, it's good for me. Uh, that, so a crisis can, can foment, uh, or be a catalyst for, for solidarity. Uh, but there are many, at the same time, there are many, many divisive, uh, forces in our, in our culture and our society as well. We could start simply with the intensive, uh, competition, uh, you know, the commercial competition that, that is upon all of us that, uh, we, you know, in our, in our economy, you know, we're all pitted against each other in, in a mad, uh, Brawl to see who will arise to the top, who will be the, you know, the, the biggest, uh, the biggest millionaire or whatever, and how many dead bodies will be left at the side of the road to achieve that. I mean, this, that, is, the economic competition alone is an incredibly stressful and divisive, uh, instrument that we, you know, under the present economic model, that's, we, we all live with that. And so, uh, when, 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 when the, when the instrument is pushed to, 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 you know, near red line as, as a normal part of performance, when the society as an economic instrument is pushed to its red line, any kind of unexpected crisis can push that, you know, up to 11. And that's a, you know, it's a terrible vulnerability. That's like a person who's got an immune deficiency trying to go out in the middle of winter to chop some wood and catching a cold, you know, because there's, the the, the, the body isn't, isn't as strong as it could be. Right. And it's not as therefore it's not as capable of withstanding some of the hardships that we could all expect will come. You know, good times and bad times are ne- are going to come, uh, whether we're prepared for them or not. If we're, if we're too busy, we're too busy uh, struggling over the small stuff, you know, fighting each other over the small stuff. We're we're going to be swept away when, when a real problem arises. I- I'm sure of that.
1: Yeah. In your opinion, how can America come together, John? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a difficult question. I know
0: as a clinician, I, I like to think of this idea of the collective body, you know, and, and that, that, uh, when folks have different kinds of, uh, and I, I'm not a medical doctor by any means, but when people have different kinds of skin disorders, sometimes that's understood as toxins emerging from within the body and leaving the body through the, through the membrane. And so when we see different kinds of toxic uh, dynamics arising in the collective body, That can also be understood as a, you know, the body is 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 growing and it's moving that stuff out of the way. Something else underneath is pushing its way up and arising. If we if we try to suppress the ugliness, uh, and and hide it or put a band-aid over it or or push it back down, it we're just it's like we're pushing the poison back into the body. So, a person like myself, it's you know, it's a little radical to to think this way, but I I see the crisis as an opportunity for growth. I think that you know, folks who are, folks who are dissuaded by some of the ugliness in our uh, society, like folks driving cars through crowds of protesters and and stuff like that. My God, yeah. The folks who are dissuaded and want to look away are, are missing out on an opportunity for growth and for collective growth. You know, some people can, some people are crushed by the wave and other people ride the wave to the far shore. So I, I say, from a clinician's point of view, if the body is detoxifying, we need to we need to facilitate that and support that, and 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 be mindful of what's coming up. You know, is something better arising? Are we shedding our old skin so that the new form can take place? This is this is how I see it. We're, it's a
1: great we're, way of seeing it.
0: We're in a, the so, society in that in that way is in a collective healing price crisis.
1: Yes, and to add further more to what we were talking, what what you were talking about rather earlier a article I recently read about a possible civil war and possible economical collapse. We've been reading these sort of things for the last several years now. I personally don't see that happening in terms of a civil war, even though it seems like that sort of thing may be transpiring. I honestly don't think that's going to happen.
0: Well, I think it is a topical issue of the day. People are uh, raising this question in in, the, in mainstream platforms what, what, what does warfare look like in the 21st century? I think is an, is an important question to consider. Is, is all of it shooting, uh, with guns? Uh, certainly not because we know that cyber warfare, information warfare is, uh, is a bloodless activity. Uh, but is, you know, has extreme costs, uh, economic costs, infrastructure costs. If so, if somebody can change a line of code on a server and take down uh, a power grid, that's an incredibly expensive problem uh, and a, and a marginalization of of you know if people can't get electricity uh, the society is you know the economy in that area is going to stop o- overnight so cyber warfare uh, and information warfare allow us to examine these questions, Outside of the context, the historic context, the well-known historic context, for example, that the the 19th century Civil War in the United States, which was a shooting war, there were propaganda elements to that. But we're now in a much prop, more heavily weighted propaganda-intensive society, where the um, incredible connectedness that the internet provides each of us has become a, a massive platform for uh, for plays on public discourse, freedom of speech, and, and uh, disinformation, psychological warfare, and so on. It's it's far less expensive to control a population through psychological means than it is to staff uh, each street corner with an armed soldier. Right. Now, I was in California during the 9-11 crisis in 2001, and I remember flying out of the San Francisco airport and this is within a within a week or so within 2 weeks of the uh of the crisis and the uh national guard were stationed at the airport in uniform uh with automatic re- weapons and it was shocking to me as a traveler because I had not seen that before in the united states i remember going up to one of the uh soldiers to ask who he, what unit he represented and someone who, who are you guys and uh yeah, that was really, uh, you know, those were different times. Very I
1: mean, different times. Yeah.
0: The, vi- the vibes in the, in the communities in the Bay Area, the feeling that I felt on the street there was, was that incredible hysteria and, and this urge for people to head to the hills. I mean, people went, you know, totally DEFCON over this. Their, people's worst fears, in other words, were aroused by this, by the notion that there's oh, yeah. an at- attack on domestic soil.
1: People were scared as hell during that time.
0: It was really intense. And so I, I, it was, it was remarkable, you know, to, to live through that time and to, but also to be in the community with people and to have a chance to observe some of these dramatic changes that arose. And so, uh, I, I'm trying to remember wh- wh- why I was, you know, coming into this thread about 9-11, but it was the, it was the faces, of the society had cha- changed as a result. Uh, the, the national outlook, let's say, uh, changed from the, uh, What, what had been in some regards a a very freewheeling time under the Clinton administration. I mean, uh, by the end of the nineties, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, it was incredible. Well, there was a tech bubble at the end of the nineties, for example. I mean, there was an incredible amount of money around. There's an incredible amount of consumer spending and all all of those things that the tone changed entirely. The collective, the collective position changed. Uh, As you said, you know, the feeling of nationalism was aroused intensely. Uh, and, and it was so intensely aroused that the people were persuaded to, to go commit acts of war, to go invade other countries, which is not something that people normally contemplate. You know, most people are interested in their families, their job, uh, their vacation. Most people are thinking about those kinds of things. So to inspire a population to go to war t- took an incredible, um, an incredible amount of resources to achieve that uh, nonetheless this you know this, this is all way past long under the bridge the worst part of 9-11 being uh, the incredible cloud of misunderstanding and confusion that still surrounds that to this day due to a whole bunch of factors uh, you know there's a lot of unsolved questions uh, unresolved questions about the the variance between the the government's position on those events and those of the independent investigators, including, like, architects and engineers who looked at those buildings.
1: Oh, it's tremendous. Have you spoken to Richard Gage by any chance?
0: No, I know the name, but I I, I don't know him or have not spoken.
1: Ah, understood. And speaking of censorship and social media, we've seen a lot of this going on in the past, even in the past year or so. And, no.
0: mm-hmm. well, well, there's, uh, what's coming out, the reports this week, uh, I've seen reports of, uh, a hundred or so, um, alternative news websites have lost their pages on Facebook. Uh, they've, they've been stripped off the site. Newsinsideout.com has had a Facebook presence for several years. And, uh, this, this month, uh, we're just ending now this month of June. We had our page taken down three times. And we successfully won our appeal three times, but the page resides there now under some sort of uh, obscure, restrict- restricted or limited status that nobody outside of Facebook staff knows what that means. And so that's well, weird. We've, you know, we we find ourselves thrown under the bus uh, by the censorplex. Now, now NewsInsideOut.com serves over two dozen departments and agencies of the U.S. federal government with news information. We know this from our, our Google Analytics. We, we, know, we know what our site traffic is composed of. And we, we have, we reflect that readership uh, with comparable uh, organizations and agencies in other major countries as well. You know, Russian Foreign Ministry, for example, reads us. So we are, uh, we are not uh, CNN or the New York Times but our dignity as a news organization is understood by its by the readership who's attracted to our content and uh, I think uh, we we have earned a place to, to to be able to continue serving that information and I, I as I say I've been spending the last several weeks trying to persuade Facebook that they need to consider that uh, we're actually serving the community we're not Uh, we're not like a vanity.
1: Yeah. You know, John, I wasn't even aware that Facebook did this sort of thing. I was only aware that YouTube did this sort of thing.
0: Well, exactly. And so YouTube, uh, the, the the sense, the sensor environment on YouTube, uh, I have content that uh, has been stripped off that site. And, you know, it's so unusual the way things happen now in our technological era. There's so many crazy ways. To grab someone off the sidewalk and haul them into an alley and beat them up without being seen—you know, m- being mugged or assaulted—you know—online uh, is that's true, yeah—is is something that is uh, is is only only the technology allows for. So, for example, I have content. I, I brought some clips tonight that were uh, one story that was an, uh from the National UFO Reporting Center, a 1974 tape of of a military uh, UFO event. That was, uh, that was stripped off the site, but I, I have experience where I've attempted to upload just in the, to talk about the weird ways censorship works online. I've, I've uploaded video files to the YouTube server, uh, that where the upload reached hundred percent, but it was then spiked on the server internally by somebody on the other side. So there was no corruption in the upload or, and no corruption in the original file, but the file would not play. It, would, it was, yeah. Spiked. Yes. On the server by, by an operator working in the shadows. So in the 1980s, the film Star Chamber discussed, uh, justice, uh, being determined in secret courts, which is, you know, now after 9-11, you know, is, is the FISA courts in the United States? This is, they're, their, you know, secret justice where people are being, uh, approached by agencies and, uh, told that they can't even tell anybody. That they've been, uh, subpoenaed or, 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 or being, uh, sued or whatever. I mean, it's, it's all super, super secret. Uh, this is really antagonistic. So, so the secret courts in Facebook and the secret courts in YouTube are making a whole bunch of decisions absent transparency, uh, from a psychological point of view. When children are punished in a non-rules driven environment, it, it only makes them crazy. It doesn't develop character. When there's, when irrational rules or anarchy, uh, determines p- punishment for kids, it, it makes, it's psychological abuse. And so with absent any the availability of transparency, if you don't work for Facebook or YouTube nowadays, there's no way of even seeing the, the rules that are guiding the conduct of the employees. We have no idea what's an infraction and what's not an infraction. We're being cited for things very conveniently. I'll give you two stories about this. this is, these are very interesting stories for someone who has a lot of time uh, trying to work with YouTube and Facebook. Yeah, don't worry. I was just going to
1: add that I myself, my, I myself have uh, faced uh, this sort of thing from YouTube, this sort of censorship, but only with my interviews with uh, James Fetzer. Um, oh. I've been flagged multiple times. Some, some interviews even taken off without even being told they were I- going to be yanked. I'm kind of surprised by all of that sort of thing. But then again... Um, people are going crazy over it. Even look at that, that woman, that YouTube, um, that one lady who went in there and shot up the place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, YouTube I, had, headquarters, I, had, yeah. I, I studied her, uh, t- police interview when she was stopped in the parking lot. It was a interesting story. Uh, the audio is not superb, but I could tell you about that. What, what I wanted to get to is that, um, yes. That YouTube's methodology from my observations, having worked with them ha- over a number of years, is that there are proxy groups outside of YouTube that will challenge copyright on original material that's hosted there. And YouTube's policy is to accept any claimant, no matter what the claimant's history is, you know, whether they're a vex- vexatious litigant or just, yeah. you know, fresh face. At, at, they they also, you got a complaint. Well, we just got to put we got to put the brakes on this publication and get the, haul that content creator down here to answer for to these allegations, you know, substantial or not. You know, we we got guilty till proven innocent going on. And so, and, and my experience was repeatedly that the complainants I could Google the complainants to find out their history. And these, they were like trolls. You know, these are basically groups that were, were making a career out of attacking other people's content with false claims, uh, to just try to uh, sabotage publication and distribution.
1: Yeah, there's false companies that exist that do this sort of thing. And one, one other thing I forgot to mention, just quickly here, in terms of YouTube and the way they like to screw with people, I've noticed some of my numbers actually decrease. And that's I don't I don't understand why even some of the ad
0: revenue seems
1: to decrease at times.
0: So the the integrity of their counter, in other words, as you said, is is highly questionable. Very. Uh, those numbers, you know, um, what I what I wanted to, what you raised is an important point. What I wanted to get back to simply saying was that my perception was. That the vexatious litigants who kept claiming copyright, but who were known widely on just through a Google search as trolls that go, that YouTube was unquestioningly, uh, endorsing their claims by, co- you know, seeing it as a cause for action told me that YouTube was using these people as proxies, uh, apparent, apparent outsiders to, to bring down enforcement. They were setting up
1: Yeah, third parties to cause a little mayhem.
0: Exactly. And so I, you know, I, I mean, that's extremely, uh, subversive and uh um, dishonest
1: it's malicious
0: conduct to say the least it's an unfair business practice for yeah. a content creator who's hoping to gather some ad revenue or grow a business uh so you know all that aside that's 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 my observation of, of some of the practices over there at YouTube you know successful youtubers uh uh not uh you know disregarded but it's not a it, the, when the internet became a public entity in the in the early 90s the notion of a level play, playing field uh, accompanied that, you know that the, the small players and the big players in the entrepreneurial world were all playing on the same rules, same game, same playing field. It was it was wide open space. It was a wide open frontier of opportunity for everybody. We we're we're so far away from that now. We're so far into monopolies and you know secret uh, secret star chambers and such. Uh, yeah, it's
1: the reason why we don't have an open source government. That will never happen, as the nature of human beings is to lie and deceive others.
0: Well, uh, and so, and so secrecy and absence of transparency, working in the shadows of someone only cultivates that kind of mentality. Uh, in other words, it's, 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 uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we institutionalize censorship, the more we're creating generations of Career censors, for example, who have an investment in maintaining a bureaucracy that continues to censor. So you're going to try to overturn some law or put a put a bill through Congress to prevent that. The lobby is going to be entrenched. Uh, that's that's what we're creating. So, well, YouTube aside, Facebook uh, is is executing similar plays. And so, as I say, we have now a a legitimate news website as a legitimate Facebook page. But that page is on some, under some kind of bizarre restrictions, which, may, which is crippling. Uh, again, unfair business practices, unfair competitive practices. Uh, you know, we could run down a whole list of things. But uh, we find ourselves, you know, like like many sm- small business players who rely on Facebook for traffic. You know, we don't have we don't have a solution, uh, and it's questionable even if we had billions of dollars of investment money. It, because of the uh, deep entrenched positions of, of companies like Facebook and YouTube, whether a challenger could arise today, even if they were properly funded, if they could actually succeed in, in moving the traffic off of those sites to establish a, a new and better platform, it's highly questionable. We see, we see in the last couple of years, due to the, the outcry over these censorous behaviors, we see numerous platforms have, have come forwards attempting to uh, offer replacements, social media replacements for these these big players I, I'm not aware that necessarily that any of those have really gathered the strength of numbers that presently reside at uh, YouTube or Facebook the the num you know the, the the mass population they may be fudging some of those numbers but the mass population still still seem to be uh, entrenched in uh, Facebook YouTube it's you know the situation today now internet being what it is you you may remember a browser called Netscape oh yeah well, in his time, Netscape was the biggest thing going.
1: Yes, it was. Mm-hmm.
0: Due to technological innovation and, and evolution, uh, te- this is the fastest kind of evolution possible. It means that a brand name, a household brand, uh, can lose its allure overnight. And, you know, I, I, I you know, there might be one or two Netscape users out there on the, on the internet now, but <laughs> I don't yes. think anyone's really using it. But if you, if you talk to people 15, Years ago or so about Netscape. It was right there. 20 years ago, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's, I look at it every day. The fault browser. So, so the hope, the hope being that those same, uh, changing dynamic market conditions could affect change. Uh, but if, if the underlying philosophy that guides the behavior, uh, that uh, that, uh, leads to the policies of companies like Facebook and YouTube, if that doesn't change, we will, we will continue to recreate Hostile environments, uh, which are supposed to, you know, be cultural platforms and social platforms, the level of hostility and dysfunction will just be uh, migrated over to the new platform. What we really need to do, in other words, is uh, is some incredible self reflection and is some incredible growth and maturity. I hope so.
1: You know, I well, I'll get into that argument in a moment here, but in terms of the internet, do you recall Net Zero?
0: No, I, I don't. I, I may have heard of that once or twice, but tell me what that is.
1: That's like a free internet service that you were able to uh, get for a short time. You were given this huge banner that that would take up half your screen, but it was free internet.
0: I think I do remember something about the
1: this company still exists to to this day. Wow. I can't even believe that.
0: Yeah, do they still take up half the screen?
1: I have no clue. I, I, that's a good question. I should look into that because. It really makes me think who on earth is still using that.
0: Right. I well I do remember this I remember this, this that that came up in the 90s sometime and uh I I remember that it was the usability question arose because you lost half your screen It's like is this really worth right. it but it, was, it was uh it was an interesting innovation and you know people are very creative they will try all sorts of things. Uh
1: there yeah I'm I'm glad you said that because there was a way to patch that so you would get rid of that awful banner. Oh I see. Yes. There's a way wow. around everything.
0: A way around. Well, this is this is what people like myself are compelled to try to find the ways around because, uh, you know, the uh, the forces that are competing with my voice to 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 tell my story are 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 heavily staffed and funded, uh, you know, because of the nature of my reporting. I, I, I go up against
1: you stepped uh, on some toes, John, if I recall.
0: Yeah, I, I go up against major institutions, uh, due to, due to the circumstances of my reporting. A, a scientist yeah. follows the, follows the data. That's, that's one of the.
1: That's why I respect you so much, John. <laughs> you know, I've known about you long before I ever got you on here. <laughs> I don't think you're aware of that, but now you are. And John, since we are on the subject, tell me more about CBS.
0: Uh, when I was. Uh, spending a lot of time as a guest on morning radio in the United States, I made connections with with a, with all kinds of uh, morning show crews and broadcasters, and was invited into a variety of different situations that were fascinating. I, for example, through one of the stations in Norfolk, Virginia, I was being broadcast over to the troops in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, at one time. Uh, you know, I, I was like a junior Bob Hope. I mean. What an incredible opportunity to, you know, to reach the world, uh, was, was, uh, was made available to me. And so, uh, because of the very controversial nature of my presentations, I, I, I focused on topical news of the day and the, the, the newsmakers and the retelling of, of the narrative around the issues of the day. Uh, I had incredibly high ratings on radio. And so one of the stations, one of the small stations in Minneapolis, um, they, they saw an opportunity and, and they offered me the opportunity to use uh, their station as a, as a mother platform to, to begin the process of pursuing syndication for a, a national feature. And so that lasted for a, a while. But what, what came down, here's, here's, here's the, here's the real clincher. You'll love this story. The clincher is <laughs> that I, I, sh- it was a weekly feature. And so I showed up one week with my content. And that this content just happened to be about the Bush administration. Uh, this is under the presidency of George W. Bush and his vice president, uh, Richard Cheney. And I had Richard Cheney-related content that was topical in the day. And so I proposed that this is what I was going to air. And it created an incredible uh, gut reaction at the station uh, where it was voiced that if they aired my – Vice President Cheney material on the station that the Secret Service would show up and turn the station off. Oh, wow. That was the level of concern that was expressed to me. And so my relationship with the station, I lost my relationship with the station over their insistence that uh, I avoided that content. And so the flip side of that was I got that far where I was being asked to produce features for, you know, under the CBS banner uh, because I, I stuck with my vision of how, I performed my work. I wasn't prepared to compromise because uh, what I was doing had worked so well, seemingly, <laughs> not just in terms of getting me access to airtime, but I, I scored uh, a lot of big points uh, where my coverage was validated. Uh, the findings that were very controversial when they were first released became accepted as mainstream knowledge and, and matters of history later on. So, in, so I lost my, uh, I lost my feature position with them. And I think it's the same year I lost my seat as a guest on major late-night radio as well. I was blacklisted uh, from a major platform, again, because of my insistence on uh, political coverage. Were you
1: blacklisted from coast-to-coast coast AM? Th-
0: that's a that's a possible uh, situation. You know, hypothetically, uh, you described uh, something that could have happened.
1: Well, that might be for the both of us. <laughs> I angered a couple people there, too.
0: Well so you see uh, you know all of this business it, we only find out the ways you know we only find out some of the uh, infrastructural elements of our society by pushing the envelope and and coming into direct contact with them these things that we wouldn't expect i was told i was breaking stories on morning radio um sort of under the radar where it was being explained to me off air that the Pentagon had put moratoriums on that kind of reporting until they gave a green light. I was beating the gun on Pentagon driven censorship for terrestrial radio with my reporting. And it, you know, uh, whether it was construed as mischief on the part of the hosts who allowed me to do it or whatnot, it, it was, it, it was quite enlightening me, enlightening to me to understand that the national, uh, broadcast infrastructure uh, is is a is a military instrument in a time of war that it's under military control, and as long as the United States continues to si- sign off, the president signs off on state of emergency declarations, which have been in place since the end of the Second World War. That those types of controls can be can be invoked, and so uh, I, I I I was informed. I was informed of these circumstances. This is at the same time that I was being given opportunities, t- you know, to broadcast out to the troops overseas. I was also be- being given, uh, you know, notices about, uh, the do, you know, what, what the, uh, what the staff, the, the different kind of restrictions that the staff were working under. It's not, it's not evident, you know, that when, when, when broadcasting is entertainment, you know, everyone's got a, everyone's putting on a happy face for the crowd. Nobody is, is, is whining about things going on behind the scenes, although that's become more common in, particularly in the Me Too era. Uh, but, um, it, it became evident to me that the, all these different controls and circumstances that I was living within, I was living within a structure that I had little comprehension of. What I said before, that it was more efficient to control a population through psychological means than it was to put soldiers on the street. Well, one of the one of the minimal considerations there is that you lose the optics of a democracy as soon as you start uh presenting a visual that looks like a police state when you start when you start having uh you know troops with automatic weapons down at the corner store and stuff like that it doesn't look like a democracy when you're down there at the UN trying to negotiate to spread democracy and so on yeah so so this is what i'm saying is that Correct. the yes. the element of psychological control is a very very powerful uh tool uh, you know, b- born of, the, you know, Bernays, uh, studies in crowd psychology and propaganda, uh, and, uh, you know, studies of w- propaganda through World War II and World Wars, uh, the, ins- the instruments of propaganda and the use of propaganda as a state instrument is, is something that's, there's still in, for the general public is still something that where there's limited understanding and there's tremendous confusion. And part of the confusion is fomented by. State sponsored actors who appear as members of the public in major media and they become the, uh, they become the focal point of discourse or the, or the gatekeepers or controllers of discourse that apparently or supposedly on the behalf of the public, but really to serve, uh, more scripted interests. Uh, this is, you know, the challenge we find ourselves today. Are the, are the whistleblowers, uh, working in the public interest or are they front men for further agendas?
1: Yes. And by the way, are you religious, John?
0: I'm, I'm a yoga practitioner, uh, which means I'm, I'm, I'm very spiritually oriented, but I, um, I'm not compelled by formal religion, uh, by law, you know, we we talk about every, you know, if a, if a, if a yogic renunciant wants to travel over an international border, they have to declare a religious status because that's the only, there's no yoga status or you know, spiritualist status, but I don't subscribe to religion. I subscribe to direct experience. I'm a mystic. I mean, to say that. I don't take the authority of text. I take the authority of direct experience. I, I, I believe and have a, a significant experience in direct mysticism. And so that's that's how I, I, I look at that question. Understood.
1: And the reason why I'm asking you is I talk lots about religion here. And, of course, lately I've been seeing, um well, not just lately, the last couple of years, it, it almost seems like politics has become the new religion for some folks out there.
0: Uh, well, this, this alludes to the notion of, of cult, uh, pr- figures arising in the society where even today, uh, you know, the, the political rhetoric, uh, poses the question, uh, uh, to the U.S. president and say that there's a, there's a Trump cult. I mean, uh, Republican, uh, senators use that kind of language to talk about the circumstances of the day. So the religious fervor and the vulnerability of the population to religious appeals is absolutely at play today there's outside of conventional religion uh, or ma- or mainstream um religious bodies there are numerous um, modern cults that the public is intensely vulnerable to uh, Nexium being a name that that has come up which is a group that was sponsored in part by the Bronfman family that's the Seagram's fortune i mean big money players were backing this group that had uh, collected a whole bunch of Hollywood actresses to uh, to get uh, sex slaves for the leader and, and branding his initials on their bodies and stuff. This Nexium group has been in the paper quite a bit.
1: Ridiculous, yes, I know. It, it's troubling to see that human trafficking and sex trafficking has really taken off in popularity the, these past several years as well.
0: So the cult appeal and the vulnerability of the population to the cult appeal is part of the contemporary, uh, mix of our society. Whether we're talking about the Manson family, whether we're talking about the branch Dravidians, uh, all of these, uh, cult, cultish settings and the, uh, in some cases, the terrible violence that accompanied that, uh, these are dyna- dynamic forces at play in the society. And, and it would seem to me that the, uh, a, a, a cunning leader would attempt to monopolize uh that existing vulnerability you know the, the, there's so much if we look at the the way po- politics is portrayed in the mainstream there's so much symbolism that is included in the photographs of the leaders where president obama is presented with like a, a glowing halo around his head you know in the washington post this kind of mainstream publications they they they, they call upon religious iconography to attempt to uh, give Jesus-like vibes. Yeah, let, let's be honest here. They
1: definitely use religion to get their point across for personal gain, and it seems like this sort of behavior is across the board. We, we see both parties, and we, we see all parties do this, where they give a public opinion that differs heavily from their private opinion.
0: Well, and so – the, the notion of uh, a, America as a Christian nation is, is a deeply entrenched idea. The Christian ideals have guided uh, decision-making policy that, that the leadership uh, – there's been you know, Christian leader, leaders in, in government for a long time. Um, and so the, the, the Christian narrative, in other words, plays a strong hand. Uh, and, and, and even in, to, in, in this, these past 10 days – the Bible was being brought out to exactly. uh, found arguments for immigration law. Yeah, uh, but but we could go we could go back to the Ten Commandments as a foundation of of Western law, and we could note that uh, the face of Moses is depicted in in a sculpture is it in the Senate or the in the Capitol building? Uh, you know, the presence of the of the Bible as a founding text uh, in, in, in U.S. culture is, is something that cannot be overlooked. And I think that in part the struggles, the multicultural-related struggles that we see evident in different ways today, relate to fears of um, of of diminishment of of the of Christian values Uh, in the school system, for example, in public schools. If I'm not mistaken, things like Lord's Prayer have been have been removed. Is that not the case?
1: I believe so. And uh, um, I just had this conversation, I believe, with Lawrence Krauss. Uh, they were trying to limit, uh, evolution as a key term.
0: Well, and so there we go. On, on the flip side, the Lord's Prayer has been taken out, but, uh, Darwinism and evolutionary science is, is diminished for creationism. And so, you know, people have, people have a lot of hope. People want to go to heaven. You know, people have a lot, feel that there's a lot at stake. Yeah. And, and there's nothing and, wrong with that. At the same time, in some of the worst expressions, uh, we look at things like apocalyptic warfare. You know, the closer we get to World War III, the closer we get to the second coming. Uh, you know, uh, this, this kind of psychology also, uh, colors discourse and political thinking, uh, with regards to military programs that the, the, there, there are apparently, you know, there are tremendous urges, uh, related to events in the Middle East, related to events in Israel. That may be in some ways from other perspectives, from non-religious perspectives, may be entirely disproportional, entirely disproportional. So again, I personally don't have a deep investment, uh, other than I respect and acknowledge, uh, that, you know, there are spiritual and ethical people in, in many different religious settings. I don't have a personal investment in Jesus or our second coming as, as, you know, uh, I say, I say we can bootstrap ourselves and get to the top of the mountain in this lifetime. That's the, what the yogis talk about. Yeah, that's a
1: good way of putting it. I don't see nothing wrong with that. And of course, um, furthermore, let, let's get into the reverse speech. Um, I guess you could say segment here on the show. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about that and, and let's run some of those clips. I know people are very excited to hear about some of this, but in terms of the science, John, have hmm. you tried to ever propose these ideas to academics?
0: Uh, well, um, my, my practice has been visited by surgeons, psychiatrists, PhD psychologists, uh, psychiatric nurses, uh, professionals in mental health have spent time in my practice with me and th- their testimonies are five star. They, there are claims that I can produce a catharsis in one appointment, which, uh, is, uh, quite uh, a dramatic change from, from the, the typical model of people who people who are looking at seven years of weekly appointments with a psychiatrist—they say that we're condensing the seven years into one appointment. So those people have evaluated that. Uh, my uh, my work has uh, received the attention of senior scientists in the United States, uh, some of whom are calling for me to orient my uh, educational work around uh, PTSD treatment for U.S. military veterans. So yeah, my, my work has, uh, has received some scrutiny, but I think the most important thing is that the body of work I created and the data points that were created through my efforts are, uh, irrefutably scientific. Uh, the, the facts of my reporting beating the headlines, uh, is, is documented by independent third parties. So any scientist who looks at the curve and the data points over a 20 year period is easily able to interpret the data. It's not, it's not confusing. I, my work a, occurs within the scientific paradigm. It's, I'm not doing anything that's outside of science. My, my work as, as obscure as it may sound fits well within the scientific paradigm and can be easily understood by a scientific minded person. By the way, peer
1: to peer review lots of times can be corrupted for those out there who aren't aware. Lots of bribes do take place.
0: There's a lot of corruption in academic journal publication that the largest sponsors get the best uh, reviews in the journals. Uh, this is a, this is related to the opioid crisis. It's I a mean,
1: funny. It's a funny way it, that works, right?
0: Well, if, funny, funny is as long as the good times are rolling, but there's always a flip side. Exactly. To, uh, yes. There's a price to pay, uh, for, for those kinds of decisions at the same time. And so, um, what I'm, what I'm getting to is that um my claims with regards to future intelligence reporting uh, any any peer can review the same uh, the same historical timeline and reach the same conclusions but as to whether or not everyone interprets what i report in the same way is not something that can be so easily decided in other words i can make a claim michael i can say at a remarkable idea an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon
1: thousands of men women and children and you my friends are about to witness
0: this idea become a reality for this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert
1: itself anything you practice should get good at BS. and welcome to a brand new life to a brand new day all the way from the wastelands of California my name is Michael and I'm a mere figment of your imagination I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation first time listeners turn on tune in and drop out this is a very different kind of show a place where you don't feel so alone let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe i do admire you for your curiosity live and direct right now on the TuneIn radio app search end of days and you'll find the 24 7 network or go to michaeldeacon.com for any episode you might have missed my guest today on this very special afternoon delight edition of the michael deacon program is michael Shermer. dr michael Shermer is the founding publisher of of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University where he teaches Skepticism 101. He is the author of New York Times bestsellers, Why People Believe Weird Things, and The Believing Brain, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, The Moral Arc. His new book is Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, immortality and utopia michael regularly contributes opinion editorials essays and reviews to the wall street journal the los angeles times science nature and other publications once again thank you ladies and gentlemen for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds here we are again hello boys and girls thank you to those listening here in america and those who listen outside of america thank you so much for your great support Now, let's get right to him right now.
2: Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you.
1: Very good. And I'm so glad you're finally here, Michael. It's taken such a long time to bring you onto the program.
2: Oh, it did? I didn't realize that. Okay, well, here I am. (laughs) Oh, no doubt. Well, I meant in in a way I've been... (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I'm just kidding.
1: Yeah, I've been meaning to reach out to you, in, in other words, but... Yeah, no problem. For sure. So so how are you, Michael? Everything's good out there on your side of the woods.
2: Uh, well, I'm in California. I think you said you're in California, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm Well, I'm out here in the desert in El Centro. It's very, very hot. You don't want to be out here.
2: Oh, you're in El Centro. Oh, man. It's a death yeah. trap. Yeah, no, I'm in Santa Barbara. It's a little slice of paradise here. Oh, my it's, God. I think it's above 80 where uh, they basically shut the city down and everyone goes to the beach.
1: I know. I'm so jealous. My home away from home, right where you're at. And, uh, Michael, I have to say I've enjoyed... Your endless appearances in the media, of course, all your fantastic TED Talks that you've done and your books are incredible in my opinion. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, no doubt. And before we jump into all sorts of topics here, can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, Michael?
2: Oh, well, I'm the publisher of Skeptic Magazine and and the director of the Skeptic Society. We're a 501c3 nonprofit science education organization, and we investigate any and all claims that science can have something to say about. Um, That's my normal day job. Then on the side, I write a monthly column for Scientific American, 211 consecutive months. And I'm a professor at Chapman University in Southern California, city of Orange, uh, where I teach one day a week, A class called Skepticism 101, How to Think Like a Scientist. So science is my thing. I write science books. The latest is Heavens on Earth, but the scientific search for the afterlife immortality utopia. My previous book was The Moral Arc, um, which had to do with moral progress. So that's kind of the, the the long and the short of it.
1: No doubt. And I do like to go to the roots with all my guests that I bring on here. And uh, Michael, I must say, how old were you exactly when you first started to question religion? Was it uh, a parent or w- who was it exactly?
2: Oh, well, I wasn't raised religious. My my folks were just not religious. They weren't secular or atheist or anything like that. They weren't anything. Uh, they never went to college or anything like that. So it, it was just a a, a, a a you might call a religious neutral home. And in the early 70s when I was in high school, the uh, kind of nascent born again movement was afoot in america and it swept through our community southern california i was raised in la Crescenta area and uh sort of a suburb of los angeles and and the the whole jesus movement was non-denominational it wasn't affiliated with any particular religion at all it was just um a movement to read the bible and kind of understand what God wanted for us and so on, but it was definitely Christian in terms of accepting Jesus as your Savior and all that. So I got into that uh, in 1971, and I was a born again evangelical Christian for um, seven years or so. I went to uh, college from high school to Pepperdine University, which is a Church of Christ school in Malibu, and... And I took courses in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the life of Jesus and the writings of C.S. Lewis and went to chapel two days a week, although that was required. <laughs> and uh yeah, I was totally into it. I, I would witness door to door because that's what you're supposed to do as an evangelical. And um ultimately, I wanted to be a college professor. And to do that, you have to have a Ph.D. and have a Ph.D. in theology. You have to... At least at the time, master Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, and I could barely get through Spanish, so I realized my, <laughs> my skill set was not conducive to that, so. Not up to par. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I switched to, um, psychology, I was interested in that, uh, also, and that introduced me to the scientific method, and in, in graduate school I got, um, you know, a lot of scientific training, and, and also in graduate school I wasn't surrounded by believers and at the time you know atheism wasn't a thing at all no one ever really talked about god or religion or anything like that it just wasn't a thing and I just dropped my faith the uh, i just problem of evil was substantial for me i didn't think that christians had a good or you know theologians had a good answer for the problem of evil Michael yeah. i can't
1: uh, believe you turned your back on god
2: <laughs> I did how dare you Well turned my back i just stopped believing that uh, I'm still here my back is still here. <laughs> and uh, yes. you know if God wants to provide proof or whatever. Uh maybe I'll find out in the next life if there is one. That's fine. I'm I'm not closed to the idea. It's
1: no doubt. A, that that's like, what I like about you Michael that you are in in some ways a little open minded more so than some skeptics out there and you know Michael I've I've had my share of experiences that were very unusual that I can't really explain myself but you know, I don't really go around thinking that science can't fully explain some of the things that I've experienced.
2: That's right. We can explain a lot. And, and the more science advances, the more we can explain. But of course the, uh, we don't know what we don't know. So there's a lot, um, that we have to stay open minded about just because we don't know what we don't know. And in my, case i tend to just say it's okay to say i don't know and leave it at that you don't have to construct a whole worldview involving the supernatural and the paranormal and things outside of nature and you can just leave it at that my latest column by the way in scientific american is on this very subject it's called um, it has to do with the mysterians the mysterians are people that believe that there are certain mysteries that can never be explained and i put three into that category consciousness free will and god and absolutely and it's not that I'm saying we just don't know yet, but, you know, someday we'll figure it out. I think ultimately the way the problems are presented, the mysteries are presented, make them insoluble. Uh, for example, consciousness, so-called hard problem of consciousness, that, that is what it's like to be something else or what it's like to be yourself. It, and the problem is is how how would I know what it's like to be you? or in the more famous uh, thought experiment by um, Thomas Nagel, what's it like to be a bat? Correct, you can't yeah. possibly know what it's like to be a bat. You'd have to have sonar and all the neural equipment to run it and huge ears and, and the sound system and wings and so on. At some point, if you bolted all those onto your body and brain, you would just be a bat. You would not be a human wondering now knowing what it's like to be a bat. And same thing, I can't know what it's like to be you or vice versa because it, it and the problem is that it's yeah, well, based you, on this false yeah, premise that sure, based on this false premise there's a, there's a little homunculus inside your head looking at the screen that you <laughs> you see, and that I can my little homunculus can leap out of my skull into your skull and see what you're looking at right and that that's not at all what it's like
1: yeah i was I was just gonna add that we do not see through each other's eyes, so we can't really know what one is perceiving. And, uh, you know, I could go in through all sorts of examples of this, but that might cause me some trouble here. So uh, I won't mention that, but (laughs) yes, now you want to know, I'll I'll tell you off air what I'm talking about. I I just don't want to further upset uh, the audience here. And one of those things I can say, however, is when I brought in uh, Lawrence Krauss here on the program, my audience was not very happy. Lots of them are full believers of, of many of these things that we'll be talking about a lot of the things that you cover in your book uh, heavens on earth which is a fascinating book uh well done Michael I just I, re- I read that whole thing it very very quickly I was surprised
2: oh thank you you're the one okay wow
1: fantastic <laughs> yeah it was a really good book and um, well, it's an
2: interesting topic I think everybody's considered it anyone who's conscious and self-aware, you know, that, well, maybe this will all come to an end. And as you know, I start off with the, the problem that we, we can't actually envision what it's like not to be alive because to envision anything, you have to be alive. Correct. So that sets up something of a paradox.
1: Indeed. And going going back to just being a skeptic, um, have you personally faced any sort of attack since you're so out there, Michael? And I asked uh, Lawrence the same thing. Um, talking about religion, politics it uh, can be very dangerous. It's something that gets the, uh, the people really talking.
2: Um, less so from religious people, more so from political people. When I when I comment publicly on anything, my column in Scientific American has a million readers, so I, I get a lot of feedback. Most religious people I find are pretty respectful. They're nice, um, even when I completely disagree with them. They you know they listen. When I talk about politics, you know, whatever the position is, pro-choice, pro-life, pro-gun control, less gun control, whatever, um, the other side uh, is pretty vicious. I mean, uh, politics, I think, brings out the worst in people more than religion. They say you shouldn't talk about politics and religion at dinner.
1: Right. I
2: find, I find, I find religions okay if you're respectful. I find it more difficult for people to talk about politics, no matter how respectful you are about it. Uh, without getting upset. Uh, maybe it's the climate that we live in now. I don't know. If things are more sensitive, uh, perhaps. I don't know. But um, it's an I, I've interesting... never had death threats, for example. Okay, I mean, good, some, good. Some people get death threats. I've never had a death threat. Um, you know, but I don't go after Islam, for example, that can bring bring down a lot of hate on your head. I don't discuss Islam much at all, and uh and the people I criticize you know it's mostly like theologians or something which are nicest people in the world, even if you disagree with them so that's not likely to bring down a lot of scorn on my head
1: and um in regards to politics, it's almost in the last couple of years we've seen politics almost becoming. Uh, the new religion for some of the individuals out there.
2: I think so. Yes. Particularly on the left. Um, it's become kind of a secular religion in which you're the, well, what we're looking at here is uh, deep moral values by which people define themselves. And when your deep moral values or foundational values are challenged, you naturally, you know, want to circle the wagons, put up the walls and defend yourself. That's, that's normal human psychology. Uh, and I think it's, it's made worse by the increased polarization of politics since the nineties. We know, for example, from polling surveys that the center has shrunk. That is the independent voters, people in the center, people are the undecided voters. That percent has gotten smaller while the two ends, far left and far right, have gotten larger just in terms of how people self identify. So that in part leads to the explanation of why we see such polarization. I think talk radio, um, Fox News uh you know whatever just take your pick you know they they tend to um demonize the other side so it's not it's just it's not just that the other side is wrong they're they're immoral they're evil for believing whatever it is they believe and that's what leads people to dial up their moral modules to 11 and get uh, outraged by whatever somebody is saying
1: Yeah people get very aggressive when it comes to uh, politics we've been seeing this more and more throughout the years but i must admit michael it has been Completely fascinating and entertaining the last ten years or so in politics
2: it has yes, well, our first black president uh was certainly a bit of moral progress in my opinion, um and you know a lot of people on the left feel that Trump was a huge step back we'll see uh I it's think it's not over. Stuff. It's not over not a the test of our checks and balances in our constitution that, uh, you know, things will keep rolling along. I'm, I'm pretty confident that in, in, in 2020 or 2024, whenever he's gone and the next one's in that, you know, we'll still be here. Things will still be cruising along pretty yeah. well. And no. I could be wrong, but yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably confident we have enough checks and balances there to keep the ship afloat.
1: By the way, Michael, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat or any of these things. I'm not accepted by any of those sides, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I I really dislike uh, most political parties out there, to be honest with you. Most of them lie and
2: deceive, and you know how that game goes. Yep, it's it's troublesome. I'm, I'm currently calling myself a classical liberal. Uh, in the kind of, the sense that the founding fathers had people like Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton, you know, that believe in certain basic, uh, rights and small government and self-reliance and personal responsibility and these sorts of things. Not, uh, I used to call myself a libertarian, but libertarianism Ooh. is too, yeah, that's my little one.
1: Oh my goodness. A,
2: a little two-year-old guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I'm going to keep my, that
1: in, by the way. That was, that that's was awesome. That's okay.
2: No, that that's all good. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so there you know, I'm more of an issues person, you know, like yeah, no I'm, doubt. I'm pro pro choice, for example, but barely, you know, I think an abortion is taking a human life. It is. Um, it's not murder because it's not a. Legal person yet, but it is killing, and I, we should acknowledge that in the same way that we acknowledge capital punishment is killing, or just war is killing. You know that there, there are circumstances in life, in, in society, where we've decided it's legal to take another life, and at the moment, abortion is one of those. And I, I think as an option for reproductive choices, it's it's good to have for uh, uh, women's rights um, of controlling their own. Reproductive rights, but exactly, not, not yes. frivolously so. I think, you know, it's the kind of thing that should be taken very seriously. And yeah, I'm glad you so mentioned need to, that. You to take an issue by issue. I mean, some conservatives would look at me and go, yeah, yeah, that guy's a conservative because, you know, small government, lower taxes, personal responsibility. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, if I say, well, we need some gun control and I'm barely pro-choice and then wait a minute. So the labels conservative, liberal. Republican, Democrat, they're too loaded. Very much things. so,
1: very much so. I, I hate to label myself even, Michael. And I'm right. sure you're the same way.
2: Yep, exactly right. Yep. So labels are, labels are problematic.
1: Yeah. And by the way, I'm glad you brought up abortion. We won't get too, too far into that, but that seems to be a topic of discussion that has gone away. It, that hasn't really been the main driving focus of what we see, uh, we see, and I, I guess you could see them say the the mainstream media. We, we don't see that sort of topic being pushed right now. Uh, I more, think it'll
2: come back now because so? uh, with um uh, the Supreme Court Justice Kennedy announcing today that he's going to retire at the end of July, and then Trump's going to appoint another probably um traditionalist, uh, originalist constitutional um, justice uh, that that could that could swing a vote if the Roe v. Wade uh, case came up. For challenge It would have to go through several courts and on appeal end up at the Supreme Court. And if it did, it's possible it could go, it could be repealed five to four, which would just mean returning abortion rights to states to decide, not, not the federal government. Um, so it's, it, anyway, it's, it, it could, it could be back in the news. And
1: yeah, we'll see what happens. And by the way, that reminds me, uh, Ben Shapiro has been all over the place and he was just talking about something like, uh, very much like this. if. If I recall correctly, just today on television. And matter of fact, you were on his show not that long ago.
2: I was. Yeah. Ben's an interesting guy. He's I was,
1: he's a very interesting guy. He seems a little wound up too tight at times.
2: Yeah. He's got a lot of energy. <laughs> he's a young guy. He's only 34 years old. Yeah. He's super <laughs> and, young. Yeah.
1: I, I really do. Yeah. I really he's do like him, energy. but yeah, he's very entertaining. Um, I like his energy, but sometimes I feel. Perhaps he's kind of complicating something that doesn't really need to be complicated too much.
2: it could be, yeah, it you know on what I'm topic. talking about right oh you know, uh, you know, yes he uh well, you know all these public intellectuals um who are commenting daily on uh political events they they have to fill hours of yeah. time uh, hours of air time that's true. Uh, and that's why, you know, sometimes when you, when, when people pick, uh, um, excerpts from something Rush Limbaugh said or Hannity said or something, it's like, you, particularly on radio, you know, these guys have three or four hours a day to fill. They're bound to do something that, you know, they misspoke or whatever. Yes. And, and, uh, you know, it's, we have to remember this is, it's entertainment first. They have to sell commercials. And, yeah, <laughs> that's it's, the it's the
1: the yeah. It's the advertising business.
2: So I, I do wonder sometimes when 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 they say something, do they really mean that, or is that just part of the uh, you know driving up the clicks?
1: Oh yes, of course. Yeah, there, there's different things people say public uh, publicly than they do uh, privately, as you know, Michael. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're aware of that sort of issue because I tell lots of people out there that, uh oh, we
2: have a 4:15 going on out there. There we go, my a little bit of a battle. That's okay. My wife's taking my little guy out now. He's upset he wants to play with me. <laughs> a a four fifteen is a fight, by the way.
1: Oh for, for those who oh, don't okay.
2: know. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. Code
1: talk there, cop talk. For okay. for the, the police out there who listen in. My God, how scary. Yeah. But yes, uh Ben Shapiro, I do like him, a very intellectual individual. Um some of the things he was telling you on his program, well, Not quite sure what that was all about. but
2: Oh, on the Messiah stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm glad, Michael, I'm glad you're picking up on it.
2: (laughs) A lot of uh, Christians and theologians argue the case for Jesus as not only a real person but also the Son of God – crucified, resurrected, and so on, uh, if, if the evidence was so good, why, why don't Jews accept him? I mean, they accept the right. same God, the God of Abraham, Yahweh, and they accept Jesus as a real person. Why don't they accept, him? and that he was crucified, because Romans crucified everybody, that's no surprise, but that he was resurrected, okay, so if the if the evidence for this is so good, why don't Jews accept it? That was my my question for Ben.
1: And that's what I was alluding to, and you picked up immediately on that. I'm glad you have that intuition there, Michael.
2: Well, um, it's a good question. Uh, I would ask for your listeners if they're Christian. They accept if you if your listeners accept Jesus as the Savior because He was resurrected. Then, and you think the evidence is, I mean, if it's one, it's one thing if you say, well, this is just an article of faith for me. It's what I believe is part of my religion. I, I'm not claiming I can prove it. Okay. Fine. But if you say, look, it, it really happened. It's really true. And we have evidence for it. Then why don't Jews accept it? Cause you know, the Jewish faith is, you know, it's filled with people that are exceptionally smart, well read, deeply ensconced in the Bible and so on. They, and they don't accept Jesus as the savior. So why not?
1: Correct. And when you were going into evolution with him, I'm surprised he didn't bring up the classic were you there line. I was only waiting oh, for that. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't think Ben goes – I don't think he's a young earth creationist at all. And that would be a complete rejection of science because, you know, much of science is not um empirical lab experiments that you can see. Much of it is historical. Right. Historical Geology, for example, cosmology, astronomy, archaeology, paleontology – Historical geology, I think I mentioned these, these are all things that already happened that you can infer from the past in, in the same way we know the civil war happened. We know the Holocaust happened and so on. How do you know? Well, because we have techniques of analyzing evidence from that. And anyway, so that's, that, that, that's right. We, we, we don't have to have been there to see the creation to know it happened. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I like to joke around with different people out there and kind of twist this one up every now and then, but I give the example of, um, I wasn't there when the Titanic sunk, but you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, I like there's...
1: to, yeah, I like to throw that one in there for a joke. But
2: it's still there at the bottom of the
1: ocean. <laughs> That's right. And uh, Michael, you talk a lot uh, about various things that I talk about on on a daily basis here when I do this program in your book, Heaven's on Earth. And uh, one of the things I did want to mention. In regards to UFOs and abductions and things people, uh, claim to have seen, um, lots of people out there make this claim and it makes me think, I wonder what truly is causing this sort of phenomenon because I, I can't just think, well, all these people are just crazy. There's got to be something more to it.
2: What are you, are talking about near death experiences?
1: No. It, well, oh. in terms of UFOs and abductions. Oh, UFOs more
2: so. and that kind of stuff. Right. No. Yeah. Uh, no, People that experience these things, um, they're not crazy, no. Uh, um, and it, But we have to take them case by case. We should distinguish between UFO sightings. I've had them. Almost everybody's seen something in the sky they can't explain. Right, sure. Uh, versus alien abduction experiences, which almost always happen at night when the person's asleep. This is called sleep paralysis. You wake up. And you feel like you can't move, like you're paralyzed. And in part, it's because you're in this kind of, uh, waking dream state in which your body is still super, uh, relaxed because that you know, your brain basically shuts your body down so you don't sleepwalk when you're sleeping. And so that when you're lying prone on your back there on a soft mattress, it kind of feels like you're floating or flying or, or, and you can't move that, that, that's normal. Uh, what alien abductions, ex- Abductees experience is something else called sleep paralysis, in which they also have a sense presence that somebody's in the room with them. Now, the, these used to be described in Middle Ages and early modern period as as demonic forces. These were succubi yes. and succubi harassing people in their beds at night. It was Satan at work. And this was considered evidence for Satan, for, uh, for demonic possession and, and so forth. Uh, now, you know, in the 20th century, it became alien abductions because the brain experiences that people have, uh, are, are real. And what you call it or how you describe it or the narrative that you write about it or talk about it is uh, very much influenced by the culture in which you're raised. So we don't live in a demon haunted world like people did in the middle ages. We live in an alien haunted world. You know, science fiction and Star Wars and Star Trek and, and, and real space exploration and, and so on. And the aliens used to look like all different kinds of shapes and sizes. But after television and films started to, um, coalesce around a certain alien archetype, you know, large head, emaciated body, almond shaped eyes, and no ears and, and so on, um, then they all started to look like that. So that tells us that these are people having, uh, weird dreams. And they're inculcating into their memories and their minds, their imaginations, images from pop culture.
1: Right. And lots of people out there for sure wholeheartedly believe what they're experiencing is real. And perhaps, yeah, perhaps it is real in their minds.
2: I'm fond of saying the experiences people have are real. The question is what, what do they represent?
1: Correct. Yes. And uh, furthermore, I must say, here in 2018, there are individuals out there who believe in the flat earth. Can you believe that, Mr. Shrimmer?
2: <laughs> that really is hard to believe. Holy no. hell. I mean, some of, most of it is just clickbait stuff just for fun. I think there's a few people that really believe it. Um, it's readily debunked. Uh, we have, go to skeptic.com and type in flat earth. We have a whole thorough, um, debunking of, you know, cl- just claim by claim. Here's what the flat earthers say. Here's why we know they're wrong. And that's, that's the way to handle it, I think. And by the yeah, way, we've we really known the earth is spherical for, for thousands of years. When Columbus sailed, he, he didn't think the earth was flat. He, he, they all knew it was round. The only thing he the question yes. was is how big is it?
1: That's actually the litmus test that I use here on the program when I'm talking to several guests. What's that? I say, do you believe in the flat Earth theory?
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> right.
1: That's the that's the the that's great the litmus, litmus test right. here. Yes, you got to remember that one, Michael. Pull that one up every now and then. Okay. Keep that one in your back pocket. And um furthermore, to add just quickly here, can you believe that there's actually conventions for the flat Earth theory? Um, what do you mean? There's actually conventions set up around the world for, for this sort of thing where.
2: Oh, conventions, yes. Yeah. yes, yes. Sorry. Uh, it, it, yeah, like in people gathering. Yeah. Right. Oh, I know. I know. There was one wow. held just recently, uh, that, that I'm afraid I missed.
1: You should have gone <laughs> and gave a little, yeah. little lecture there. That would have been great.
2: Um, well, they didn't invite me and they're not likely to invite me, but you know, they, they really need someone just, uh, a round earther. A round earther, an yes.
1: <laughs> and, uh, to wrap up the whole UFO abduction thing, um I have interviewed lots of individuals here who claim to have been abducted Michael and many of them tell me that they've communicated with these entities telepathically and some of the messages that they've received uh to me it, they come across very eastern traditional and you kind of talk a little bit about that in your book as well um it, it always seems like save the planet and be good to each other. And it's kind of like common sense. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying?
2: Right. Love one another. Yeah. That yeah,
1: sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very no, new age. Oh, I know.
2: Yeah. So the, the messages people get from psychics and astrologers and aliens and so on, they are always these Sort of mundane generalities, you know if, if only a psychic would have told us you know where is Osama bin Laden hiding, which cave is he in so we can go get him you know they they're They're fond of telling us the love life of Jennifer Aniston and brad Pitt but but they and they know great details about celebrities, but they they can't seem to find like where where the North Koreans are hiding their nukes uh you know they they can't seem right. to get that
1: information, yes, isn't that odd?
2: Well it's not odd because it's it's baloney <laughs> because it can't actually do anything. Uh but yeah, that that would be a, a litmus test. Well that, that would be my litmus test. Tell me where the North Koreans are hiding their news.
1: Well and, well Michael, you, you gotta admit um, Dennis Rodman did save the planet once again that's
2: right yeah well my 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 one thing about Dennis Rodman is he mm-hmm. lives in Los Angeles, so which is where I'm at here in Southern California, so I figured if uh you know Kim Jong Un and him are our buddies, maybe the North Koreans won't nuke l a and I'll be okay.
1: <laughs> I know that that's a positive,
2: yep, totally.
1: Now we only have to worry about earthquakes out here.
2: that's it, yep, earthquakes and fires and floods,
1: right, and Michael, by the way. Before I forget, do you have anything new coming out, any new uh, books in the works?
2: Um, well, I'm trying to decide what to write next. You know, The Heavens on Earth was my 13th book, and uh, so I'm just kind of ruminating on what I should write next. My next big project will probably be a television series based on the moral arc. It's something I'm working on now, a script for that, uh, four-part, five-part perhaps one hour each documentary series um, for national television, basically tracking moral progress. How how things have been getting better. I think it's important to to remember that what life used to be like a thousand years ago, five hundred years ago, even a hundred years ago or fifty years ago, how much better it is now than it's ever been. I mean, just think of the dentistry or the medicine a thousand years ago or five hundred years ago, or how many people died violently centuries ago or what, you know, we, we bemoan the, you know, the slightest racist tweet by a drunken celebrity at two in the morning like Roseanne and, and everybody loses their minds. Well, just think how people used to talk about blacks and Jews and women say 50 years ago or a hundred years ago. And, you know, it's, it's, things are so much better today, even though it's That's not true. perfect. Uh, you know, so that's my next project, I think, is to really try to bring that home to people.
1: To yeah, Let's talk a little bit about society right now. Um, where exactly do you see things going, Michael? Do you think perhaps society has dropped a few IQ points over the past
2: couple of years? No, actually, well, there's two, two ways to think about this. First, there is something called the Flynn effect. Uh, James Flynn is a psychologist from New Zealand who discovered his eponymous effect by looking at IQ scores over the last century and Basically the test companies that make these IQ tests they've had to re-norm them about every decade or so because people are getting better at these tests. Now, it's not the portions of the test that you can study for like vocabulary or or algebra or something like that. These are the um sort of symbolic or abstract reasoning portions of the test and IQ scores have been going up about 3 points every decade. So that's a that's a you know, in, in in terms of a
1: that's a step forward
2: of, of a century. That's Q points. That's two standard deviations. That would put you know put URI if we were at a hundred, it, it jumped to one thirty. That would put us at the you know sort of above sort of Harvard level student IQ, um, and, and that's the average. So there's something going on there that no one knows for sure, but we think it has to do with the entire culture shifting from agriculture to industry to now digital and information and that we're getting better at abstract reasoning. Just, just think of like kids playing video games. You know, they're manipulating symbols and, and they're doing a lot of abstract reasoning in their head just to navigate these games. And that, you know, in general, just people surfing the internet and so on, all that requires a lot of Rapid uh, sort of you know symbolic type type thinking. So there is that. The, the other aspect is is uh, what makes it seem worse is social media. You know it's sort of the dumbing down of of America. It, if you if you if you're on social media, it certainly seems like you know, things are dumb and getting dumber. Um, but but in fact, it's just a tool like a printing press. It's well, that's just, a, just
1: a by the way, that's just a, a small percentage of the pie
2: i think so yeah. yes I, I i do i mean the new york times is still around the wall street journal is still around they have fact checkers they have editors you know the 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 writing is high quality the research the fact checking is there um you know mainstream media is still pretty good the big boys um you know and and if you think one's more biased than the other well you know they just just read the other one then or that's right or read, or read both of them so um but in, in the general, um take home, I think, is follow the trend lines, not the headlines. If you just watch the headlines every night, it seems like things are bad and getting worse. If you follow the trend lines, like I mentioned earlier, last 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, you know, things are much, much better. I mean, that, you know, everyone talks about Kim Jong-un. He's like the only dictator, well, maybe there's one or two others. Uh, dictator in the world, you know, but, but a hundred years ago, you know, every other political leader was a dictator like Kim Jong Un and that the American democratic model was very rare. Now there's about a hundred and I think the last count was 122 liberal democracies in, in the world. There used to be you know, 50 years ago, just like a dozen. So, you know, that kind of thing is getting much better.
1: By the way, there's been lots of debate over. Gun control, we, we've seen countless school shootings uh, just this year and last year alone. What are your opinions on all of that? Why are these things occurring so often?
2: Yeah, I used to be against gun control because I was a libertarian freedom guy. You know, people let people do whatever they want. I think we need some controls. I mean, obviously we don't already don't allow people to have guided missiles and right. and surface-to-air missiles and nuclear weapons and things like that. So we already do have uh, gun controls and and you know you cannot legally own a machine gun, for example. That's been illegal since the 1930s when the mob started using them. And and even conservatives and hardcore NRA supporters will say, yeah, yeah, no machine guns. You know, so obviously we it, the question is where do we draw the Line. and in terms of school shootings uh, there's nothing anyone has proposed that will have any effect on on that on school shootings because they're they're so random i mean it seems like they're in the news a lot um but of course no one sends a camera crew to an elementary school and and reports that you know yet another day without a school shooting will be back tomorrow no we only rush to the ones where um, there are school shootings so it seems like they're much worse than they are and of course compared to say 50 years ago yes there's more school shootings part of the problem is the naming and identifying and showing the picture of the um the perpetrator and that's a bad idea i think the media the media already has protocols about not uh giving the names of say uh, children who have been molested they don't show their pictures they blur them out or they don't give their names rape victims for example they protect their identity we already do that uh, for good reasons and we should do that with the school shooters because every one of them now says i wanted to beat the other guys and kill more kids yeah. than they had killed so that's that's a better solution than say some of these gun control measures right. which will have no effect on the school shootings now what they could do is help reduce the carnage the overall numbers of things like domestic violence shootings like most women that are killed are killed by an intimate partner and usually – and more often than not with a gun. And so violence in intimate partnerships when the guy already has a restraining order, there are laws about that. If you have a restraining order, you cannot buy a gun. So we need to you know, enforce laws like that that are already in place um and you know so background checks for you know people that are mentally ill yes they should not have a gun uh and just enforcing those sorts of things that are already on the books i think would help I, in terms of the overall carnage you know 20,000 people a year or so and, and no no it's less it's about 30,000 total but if you take suicides out of it Because we're just talking about homicides and school shootings and things like that. It's down to less than 20,000 a year. If you could, we're not going to reduce that greatly with gun control measures because there are already over 300 million guns in America. So even if we stopped all production tomorrow, there's still 300 million guns floating around, actually more than that. And and so if somebody wants a gun because they want, they're going to get kill one. Somebody, they're going to get a gun. Yeah, people and, get what you know, they we're, want. We're a country of of civil liberties and rights, and we're not going to become Nazi Germany where you go door to door and take every gun away. If if anyone attempted to do that, any government agency attempted to take people's guns away, we're going to have a Waco every weekend. You know, and that's just, that's intolerable. So I really don't have a good solution to the, you know, the mass homicide problem that we, we are facing compared to other countries. Uh, I, there's just no solution. There's no good solution.
1: Right. There really isn't no one good answer. Just like there is for everything out there, there, there always seems to be a magnitude of how to answer each solution out there. And one of the things you reminded me of is Anthony Bourdain. By the way, we, we've seen a string of celebrity suicides.
2: Yeah. So I have a, uh, an article I'm researching now for Scientific American on why people kill themselves and we don't know. <laughs> I mean, I've talked to world's leading experts on psychologists that study suicide. This is what they do. And they say, we don't know. Even this is the free thing. The people themselves who commit suicide and, and, and then they survive they didn't know they were going to do it like that. They got up that morning and just like, okay, today is the day. And it's not like something they were planning that was predictable. I mean, obviously depression is a big part of it, but but lots of people suffer from depression and, and never kill themselves or even try to. So even as a predictor, severe depression is not very good. And beyond that, you know, too much money, not enough money, uh, you know, oh, we worked in the TV industry, it's so shallow. No, this has nothing, this is completely meaningless explanations for any of these uh, people and I, I uh, tend
1: to believe you know, so I tend to believe so and I'm not sure if you're aware of this but the whole conspiracy angle surrounding his death has just been uh, oh yeah that's wildfire. Crazy. Hillary,
2: Hillary did it Hillary yeah
1: <laughs> so you don't you don't believe the conspiracy theories Michael that,
2: <laughs> he, was uh, that he was whacked
1: yeah he was about to expose elite pedophiles
2: <laughs> right you're not buying that no not buying, it. Not nope, buying nope. it I'm not a Hillary fan but she's not a mass murderer
1: I I you know the I heard that almost immediately after his death. I knew people were just so into this, and they were emailing me and texting me, did you hear so-and-so? Uh, Hillary did. I'm, I'm just like, oh, my God.
2: Yep. It doesn't take long for any of these things to – Not everything is a
1: conspiracy, by the way, for those out there listening. They're, they're
2: perfectly great
1: explanations for a lot of these things out there, and some people just have these uh, blind spots in their logic –
2: well, it's true. The problem with conspiracy theories—I've written a lot about this. It's—it's pretty interesting topic. Is this is not like you know ESP, paranormal, perpetual motion machines that you know they can't be true. Uh, conspiracies do happen. Uh, I mean, you know, Watergate was a conspiracy. Right. Lincoln was assassinated yeah, by a these conspiracy. These things do happen,
1: but not happen. some people they really do believe that everything is a conspiracy, and for, maybe maybe perhaps for them this is their flat Earth.
2: In a way yes in 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 part it's there's a lot of psychological research on conspiracy theory believers that is they right. they tend to think that first of all they tend to be people not in power so they always think somebody else has the power that I don't have and they Corporations, government agencies, things like that, uh, that when you actually get on the inside and you work there and see how the sausages are made, you realize, okay, these people, they're incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They can't run the world. Uh, that's just not how the world works. But we have this uh, notion that you know, that nothing happens by chance. So our intuitions are very poor at understanding the law of large numbers, probabilities, statistics, randomness. You know, much of what happens in the world is random, random to our minds. We just can't know why things happen. So it's hard to grasp that, you know, like why why gas prices go up or down, why the economy is sound or it's not. You know, these, these things have a life of their own that no one really can control. Uh, and so we, but, but, but when it affects the person, we feel like, well, I can't control this. I don't have any power. Somebody else is doing it. So everything happens for a reason is a very common explanation. No, no, no. Most things happen for no reason at all. It's just randomness. And, uh, you know, it's like simple statistical um examples are like hot hands in basketball you know uh, you know we see we tend to notice streaks winning, winning streaks losing streaks mostly winning streaks hot hands uh, but statistically when you crunch the numbers uh, there's nothing unusual happening there beyond what you'd expect from the random uh, ups and downs of any given complex system like that and so but our mind uh, puts patterns on it and thinks there's a pattern there
1: right our and, minds uh, are it works almost the same way like those who see images in clouds or inanimate objects. Oh my goodness, a dog.
2: Oh yeah, that's, uh, my dog Hitch named after Christopher Hitchens. Ah, like- nice. Hitchens, yeah. He's a big chocolate lab here. Yeah, he's protecting us here. So maybe, oh, that's maybe this good. is the one, the one person that wants to whack me. <laughs> uh, ha, ha.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, anthropomorphizing, right?
2: That's right, to a certain extent. I call this patternicity, the tendency to find meaningful patterns in random noise. Uh We all do it, you know, the face of Jesus and the tortilla. the there you The yes. side of a building, you know, <laughs> cloud you know, the dog in the cloud, that kind of thing. You know, we find these patterns. The question is, are they real or not? Now, some patterns are real. Sometimes they're not. That's what we need science for. But generally, for conspiracy theories, they're almost never true. Very, rare. you know, Princess Di was murdered, whatever. These things are just, you know, just crazy. But people believe them because they're easy. It's easy to put together three or four data points and you know, how do you explain this 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 and this there must be something behind it no actually randomness explains it you know that That's there's right. always these kind of weird anomalies that happen when you notice it my favorite example of this is from the JFK assassination when um there's a in the zabrider film you can see this guy standing there with an umbrella uh on the umbrella the man yes yeah, the umbrella meant. And it's like, but it was a clear sunny day. Why would he have an umbrella? And it took decades before this guy was found. And he came out and said, I had an umbrella because that was a, a a sign of protesting the president that goes all the way back to Chamberlain. Um, that Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, when he returned from Czechoslovakia meeting with Hitler, or, uh, meeting with Hitler in, in Berlin over Czechoslovakia. And, you know, de Führer, he promised he would not take another piece of uh, Europe and, and, you know, here's the paper anyway. So Ch- Chamberlain had a, his umbrella there. He's holding his umbrella. So that became a symbol of protesting, um, you know, a, po- a politician. So this guy was out there protesting Kennedy with his umbrella. But, you know, that's conspiracy theorists. You know, they all, the umbrella wasn't actually – it was a gun, and he was, was the guy gun, who yes. shot Kennedy. And-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard so many JFK conspiracies. Um uh, I'm not surprised by any of them. Lots of good good information, however, that comes out from that. And we still don't have the full story yet. Um,
2: still well, block- I, I there mm-hmm. I, I think I disagree with you. I think we know Oswald did it, and he acted alone. You know the full story. Well, of course, there's always things we can't explain. There's lots of things anomalies around 9/11 that we can't explain. But it's a you know it's a monumental event, and after after the fact, you look back and you and you look for little details you can't explain. But that would be true for anything that happens anywhere in the world on any given day. You know, there's some little weird things associated with it you can't explain it. What does it mean?
1: Nothing. I can't argue with that. That's 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 a fact there. And one thing I will say about the uh, Clintons, however, if you recall, back in Mena, Arkansas, uh, Bill Clinton, he had uh, that whole thing with with the cocaine smuggling. If you remember, so yeah, conspiracies uh, do do tend to happen every now and then.
2: I mean, we it, it's it's fine to criticize politicians, but don't give them more power than 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 they actually have. Most- Politicians can't do anything about the That's economy. True, yes. There's very little they can do about other political leaders like Putin or Kim Jong Un. Really, there's very little uh, any president can do. But we, because we're on the outside, we're not sitting there in the Oval Office mm-hmm. watching, you know, the sausage being made. And it just seems like, you know, they're plotting. What this a crazy and that.
1: gig, though, right? Why, why would any, anyone want to be the president? Why would anyone? I would,
2: I, I, it's my God. Me. You know, first of all, half the country hates you the moment you announce. Exactly. Exactly, then half the people in your own party hate you because they want the other guy right and then even when you get elected, you know it's like almost everybody hates you for something you did you know and it's it's like so for example, when Clinton didn't intervene in uh rwanda and the genocide happened you know he gets blamed for not intervening. so he intervenes in kosovo during the civil war and then he's blamed for you know who do you think you are the america thinks they're the world's police you just stay out of other people's business well, okay which is it
1: you <laughs> so, can't yeah. please everyone that's that's the uh, problem And to, to wrap up the whole conspiracy angle, there's one more individual out there, uh, by the name of Alex Jones. Any, any opinion on Alex out there? Alex
2: Jones, yes. He's quite the character. I'm not 100% convinced that he's not just an actor. He's
1: a, a, he's a
2: gimmick. It's, it's just, uh, you know, performance art. I don't know. Uh, one of the most amusing things, however, I've ever seen is his several hour, uh, performance on, call it that on uh, the Joe Rogan experience. Joe Rogan is a great guy. He's a friend of mine and I've been on the show four times. Yeah, and, I've seen you and, on there. Yeah, and he got Alex, he offered Alex some whiskey and then they lit up a joint. And That's right. Alex was often running about the interdimensional alien <laughs> child molesters. Oh my. It was really funny. Yeah, he
1: went down that rabbit hole indeed. I'm not quite sure what made him go down that route during that uh, publication there, but that was very interesting to yeah, watch. And
2: it's troubling that people take them seriously because, you know, things like the Sandy Hook shooting was you know orchestrated by the Obama administration and these child actors and on and on and on. I mean, it's just insane that anybody could listen to that and believe it. But then again, a guy showed up at that pizza place thinking that that Hillary was running a child molestation ring in the back of the pizza joint. Yeah, This
1: <laughs> can be dangerous for some individuals. Yeah, That's yeah, why that
2: I brought a gun. Yeah, that yeah, was not
1: good. Th- this is why I, I wonder about you sometimes, Michael. I have to say there's lots of people who get worked up very easily over some of the things that we're discussing. So uh, you're someone who's so out there in the public. I I could just imagine that perhaps one day someone might go crazy on you.
2: Hopefully not. <laughs> I
1: hope
2: not. Uh, but like even my latest book, Heavens on Earth, you know, if you're a believer, you're, most of your audience, I guess, is uh, Christian, uh, so I assume they believe in an afterlife. Look, I, no one knows for sure, this is the conclusion of my book, and that in, in a way it doesn't matter, uh, because we don't live in the afterlife, we live in this life. We don't live in the hereafter, we live in the here and now. So whether there's an afterlife or not, you really should make the most of this life. That is, love the people that, uh, you love, uh, and cherish every day. You know, make, make, live every day like this is it. This is the last, this could be the last day I have. I could be smacked by a car tomorrow. Who knows? Exactly. And so I, I better really be super nice to the people I encounter when I'm at the Starbucks or on my dog walk or whatever. You know, just, it, it, it makes every day meaningful. And if it turns out that, you know, when I close my eyes the last time here and I wake up and, I'm in this other place, whatever that would be. And there's my parents and my friend Stephen Jay Gould and Carl Sagan, Isaac Asimov and all these people I knew and, and loved and, and, and admired. And there they are. Well, okay, fine. Uh, you know, but I, 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 I think worrying about it too much is a mistake. You're going to miss out so on, too. on this life.
1: Yeah. And I, I've heard you say that life itself is the reward and I agree.
2: That, that's right. It's, it's a matter of scale. I call this uh, Alvy's error. Alvy is Alvy Singer, Woody Allen's character in, in uh, Annie Hall, right. where he has that flashback as a child where he won't do his homework. His mom takes him to the psychiatrist. You know, Alvy, why won't you do your homework? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. Yes, the universe is everything that there is. And if it's expanding one day, it's going to blow up. And so none of this matters that uh, we're doing now. And his mother yells at him, what's the universe got to do with it? We live in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's not expanding. You got to do your homework, and and that's right. We you know we live in a world that's it's not expanding. You know it's here we are, and it's meaningful because we make it meaningful. That's
1: true, and I think lots of people forget about that sometimes. They're thinking uh, about the afterlife without thinking about the now. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You, you might miss and the bigger phase, picture. And in any case, you should
2: be good for goodness' sake, not because you think you get to go to heaven or anything like that. None of that. that. That's not the reason to be to be good and moral. You should do it for its own sake, just 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 because that's the right thing to do.
1: Yes, and then of course that brings me back to the whole uh, debate issue. When I've seen I've seen countless debates. I've, I've seen you debate a few people, and I've noticed lots of uh, Christians or, or pastors out there, though. Go back and ask how does one define morality and if you could have such without, uh, without having, you know, the whole Bible, uh, dogma attached to that. Um, we see this all the time and, um, I've, I've had talks with, with different pastors out there and I've seen them get very angry once I question why they're driving such a fancy car and everyone else is. (laughs) Right. Yeah, everyone else is driving a beat-up car. I ask, why is that? Can you answer that question for me, sir? Um, yeah, they when, don't like when, that.
2: When did Jesus become a conservative, a <laughs> right. Republican? I mean, does that know, bother you, Michael? Have you ever, you ever, yeah, it does. Have you ever thought forest. about
1: that? The, have yeah, you ever seen have. some of these pastors, the amount of money they rake in?
2: It's terrible. Holy I mean, hell. It's embarrassing. I'd be embarrassed if I was a Christian. I mean, I met and spent some time with uh, Rick Warren, uh, you know, the mega church in, in uh, Irvine. And, you know, he made a gazillion dollars on that book, Purpose Driven Life. Now, I didn't get anything. I read the book. I didn't get anything out of it. Didn't do anything for me. Uh, but he's a super nice guy and he, and he, you know, he wears kind of, you know, uh, worn out jeans and a, and an old jacket. And, and, you know, he could, he could afford a private jet probably with the money he made on that book. But he gets likely. most of it away. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, no, and he cares about poor people and hungry people and, you know, people that need, that really need help. And, you know, that to me, the whole prosperity gospel of people like Joel olstein it's like, Jesus, (laughs) literally Jesus, you know, what would he say? Uh, I mean, if you read, you know, the the Sermon on the Mount, I've read all this stuff. I took a a whole course in the life of Jesus at Pepperdine. And uh, this is not what it was all about. You know, this is so I I think a lot of Christians have have gone off, gone down the wrong path with that. Um, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong from a sort of a capitalist perspective nothing wrong with making money but that's not the point yeah
1: not at all i don't i don't see um that sort of thing being an issue where um you see these people making money off of others ignorances but it does sort of bother me in a way where it's they're taking advantage of their own uh flock as they say
2: yep well of course the you know the uh, you know, the, the prosperity gospel people, the te- the televangelists that are, you know, raking money from super poor people, you know, that's just not, not right. Um, but, but, but even the prosperity gospel, again, y- you know, th- that's, that's not the point of Christianity. I mean, if you want to go to a, you know, a pro-capitalist type, uh, the social group or, you know, something like that where you, you talk about making money, that's fine. But you don't think of religion as tied up in that.
1: I know it's quite terrible, and of course that really does make people a little upset once they're heavily in into their religion, and you tell them that they they get very angry with you,
2: yep, yep, that's right, so by the way, have you ever
1: got got into it with any uh Scientologists out there?
2: Oh, yes, I know. Uh, some Scientologists, I know some ex-Scientologists, and uh, I've gone to v- uh, probably a dozen different Scientology offices. I know all about it. Yeah, yeah, it's you know it's something a weird like a cult. One. You know, it's something like a cult in the sense that. Uh, you know, they're heavily focused on money, taking, you know, getting as much money as they can from their members. Uh, I have met people that have been helped by them. I met Isaac Hayes, the famous singer and, uh, South Park voice, uh, the chef on South Park. He famously won a Grammy Award for, uh, Theme from Shaft. Right, right. Back in the 70s. Big megastar. He lost everything uh and then you know he sort of down and out and Scientology got him off drugs and alcohol and he put his life back together and that's when he made his second comeback he's deceased now but um you know I met him and asked him what he got out of Scientology and that was it it's like they helped me it's like okay you know I I, I never uh i am never bothered by groups of any kind that really help people uh it's but when it turns to like bilking old people out of money and things like that people that can't afford it you know that to me is immoral mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's just wrong. I'm not quite sure how they could sleep at night.
2: Right. Well, they're not being very Christian. Let's put it that way.
1: <laughs> I know, right? That's very anti-Christian. Yep. And Michael, I do want to thank you very much for being a part of the program. I do not want to hold you up for the rest of your day here.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Michael.
1: Yeah, it's been a fun, a fun uh, discussion here. I'm going to have to bring you back on, uh, in due time. We'll do that. All right, Michael, it was fantastic talking to you finally. Uh, go ahead and plug anything you'd like, if there's any events perhaps that you'll be lecturing
2: at, uh, anything of that nature. Oh, Well, um, I think uh, the easiest thing is my webpage, michaelshermer.com or skeptic.com, where you go to Scientific American and see all my columns there, all 200 of them. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of the best way to access my my writings and, and what I do. Very
1: nice. Well, Michael, thank you so much. And remember, Jesus does love you still.
2: Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. If he's up there uh, watching out for me, just know that, uh, hey, I have an open mind. Uh, I'm open to whatever it is you want to uh, tell me about, or I'll see you in the next life if that's the case.
1: I'm an agnostic atheist, by the way, but I like to okay. keep, I like to keep <laughs> Jesus in my back pocket.
2: I see. Yeah. Just in case. <laughs> yeah. You
1: never know when you might have to bring him up.
2: That's right. Yes, sir. <laughs> all, all right, right Michael. Michael take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: And that was Mr. Michael Shermer. Great, great guy. And in conclusion, in my final word here, I must say, it doesn't matter what race or gender you are or what your religious background is, just keep in mind we are all one here. And if you are listening to this, keep in mind every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm live right here on the TuneIn Radio app. Just search End of Days and you'll find this program. And if you enjoyed this afternoon's program here, keep in mind if you want to help, go to michaeldeacon.com and donate a few dollars. I profoundly appreciate it. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. In the court, hard out. That way? I'm a oh my! Now. Drop out of yeah. that! Drop out of that! We mentioned the Illuminati, <laughs> and We're not going too deep
2: behind that, but the Illuminati certainly yeah. is part of the whole thing. That about- the top members of the Illuminati are open Christians. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were. Given me like bullshit. You like, it's you can my see it.
1: All it's clear. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate! I wish I could be in that ring with
2: Hulkam right
1: now. It's crazy. I Had no idea this shit existed until seventy twenty seven, six. It's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see
2: the button, then you nipple, then you look, bring you fuck ring lady. Yes, that's what I want. Just
1: for what it's worth, I want to put in my two cents to tell you both that you have one of the most incredibly well-rounded shows.
0: Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what?
2: (laughs) Successfully erased flawless victory.